1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For all its many institutions, the European Union never had a high-level public prosecutor who could bring charges on behalf of the bloc. That is, until now. We look at a new office and its powers and just how much stolen money it may track down. And in Japan, store shelves are constantly in flux, as snack and sweet makers push seasonal flavors that can change by the week. Right now, it's chocolate mint, and the Japanese are obsessed. They should stock up. That flavor too will soon be gone. But first, Australia has just chalked up its worst daily count of COVID-19 infections. Meanwhile, the country is dramatically shifting its approach to the pandemic, as Prime Minister Scott Morrison outlined on Monday. The national plan we have developed and agreed is our pathway to living with this virus. That is our goal, to live with this virus, not to live in fear of it most restrictions will be eased when the country is about three quarters vaccinated. Because this cannot go on forever. This is not a sustainable way to live in this country. Australia has been one of a handful of countries to take a zero-COVID approach, with strict border restrictions and rigorous contact tracing. Life for much of the pandemic has been fairly free. But then in June, a man infected with the Delta variant wandered through a Sydney shopping mall, seeding an alarming wave of infections.
0: Australia's COVID-19 cases spiked to a new record high on Sunday. Health officials have warned the country is vulnerable to more deaths and hospitalisations, given just 27.5% of the national population is fully vaccinated.
1: New Zealand is suffering too with a spike in cases. That's led to a massive push in vaccinations. From today, all adults over age 30 are eligible. The plans that countries have been working to were all in response to last year's variants of the coronavirus. Now, a lot of those tactics must evolve as well.
2: Australia, like several other countries in the Pacific, pursued a zero-COVID strategy from the very beginning. So they have managed to keep cases very, very low throughout the entire pandemic.
1: Slaveya Chankova is our healthcare correspondent.
2: For much of the past 18 months, people were able to visit friends or go to shops, restaurants, and even theaters. But now it seems like their strategy is no longer tenable with the Delta variant, which is highly contagious.
1: So what were the particulars of the, the zero COVID approach?
2: Australia imposed very strict border closures and a strategy to eliminate the virus from its territory. Because cases were so low... They were able to implement a very, very meticulous test and trace system. So to catch each and every case, uh, potential infection, and that's how they were able to get to almost zero cases for most of the pandemic. Australia has registered so far only 38 COVID-19 deaths per million people, compared with about 1,700 per million in Europe. So that's a rate that's 45 times lower than in Europe.
1: But that strategy seems to have come unstuck in the the face of the Delta variant.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, Australia is now having a really hard time dealing with Delta, which is highly contagious. It spreads so easily that even if contact tracers get to an infected person within 30 hours of a positive test, which is probably the fastest you can do it, that person's contacts would already be infectious and spreading the virus down several chains of transmission. So the only way to curb such widespread outbreaks has been to do short, snap lockdowns. But now so many cases have slipped through the quarantine net and contact tracing that containing the outbreaks has become what one person interviewed called an epidemic of lockdowns. Nearly half of Australians uh, have been under strict lockdown at some point since June. And Melbourne, for example, one of the biggest cities, has uh, chalked up more than 200 days of lockdowns since the pandemic began.
1: And you mentioned Australia is not the only country in the region to take this fairly hardline approach. How are those other countries faring against Delta?
2: So New Zealand is in a similar predicament now. It's still, for now, sticking with this take-no-prisoners approach, but it's not easy. All of New Zealand is now in lockdown, and cases are at their highest since the early days of the pandemic and still rising. Vietnam has had a remarkably successful tracing system until this April New daily cases there had been in the single digits, but the tracing system had been crushed by Delta. They have more than 10,000 daily cases now, so Vietnam as well has been forced to abandon the zero COVID model. Singapore is one country in the region which um, has done quite well. They are probably out of the woods because vaccine coverage there is almost 80% now.
1: And surely how bad things are, how bad things can get depends a lot on on vaccination status. I mean, how has Australia done on that score?
2: Vaccination there has been very sluggish. Still, only around a quarter of Australians have been fully jabbed for several reasons. Australia had pre-ordered large amounts of a vaccine that failed in clinical trials and also uh, large amounts of the AstraZeneca jab, which Australians have been hesitant to accept after early... of some rare side effects, uh, the blood clotting issue that emerged early on. The other thing that caused delays to the rollout was um, some snags and distribution. The vaccine had to be distributed to 40,000 family doctors, uh, but they're spread across a vast, vast country. Vaccination is now accelerating, so they're looking to maybe get to 70, 80% as early as October this year.
1: So it's something of a complicated picture, but in your view, given the way things are going in Australia now, what what sort of lessons do you think can be taken for the rest of the world?
2: Well, the biggest lesson is that a combination of border controls and good contact tracing systems can keep cases very low for a virus as contagious as last year's variants of COVID-19. So this is a takeaway, perhaps for future pandemics. Of course, the strategy works best when you have no land borders. All you do is just stop flights. But it may not be such an easy option for all countries, or at least not for a long time. And of course, when you have a very, very contagious virus like Delta, it's a whole different ballgame. Then the strategy may not work at all.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Lavea.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: The European Union has long struggled to punish those who steal from it. Member States are often reluctant to hand over powers to the bloc, such as the ability to prosecute their citizens. So the EU has had limited options to crack down on fraud that's it billions. The launch of the European Public Prosecutor's Office, or EPPO, early this summer should change that.
2: Our target, economic and financial criminality. Make no mistake, this is the most common threat to any democratic society.
1: Laura Coveci, the incoming head of the EPPO, ran Romania's anti-corruption agency for five years, helping to convict thousands of crooked officials and business people. Her new role will keep her just as busy.
2: We are the first really sharp tool to defend the rule of law in the EU. Our success Is a matter of credibility for our union.
1: The creation of the office comes just as the EU is set to distribute 800 billion euros in pandemic recovery funds.
3: The EU spends somewhere between 1 and 2 percent of the European Union's entire GDP. So that's a couple of trillion dollars or euros.
1: Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent.
3: And EU investigators think that somewhere between 0.5% and 1.5% of that spending in certain categories might be fraudulent. In certain countries that are especially prone to fraud, the rate might be a lot higher. The countries most prone to fraud are the ones that either have big organized crime rings, places like Italy, or countries that have illiberal populist governments, where a lot of government officials are handing out state goodies to their friends.
1: And so tracking down those millions or or billions of euros that are going missing is exactly what the EPPO is set up to look into, right? I mean, what powers does it have that didn't exist
3: before in the EU? The EU doesn't have a big core of its own prosecutors that go out and bring charges against people for crimes in the way that America has federal district attorneys for different regions of the country. All the major cases up to now have had to be brought by national prosecutors. So this is the first time that the EU gets its own core of prosecutors who are supposed to initiate cases and bring charges. At this point, it only has to do with the administration of EU funds so they can bring charges for the misuse of EU money. Cases involving fraud with EU money tended to cross borders. So previously, you'd have to get multiple agencies from different countries and get European search warrants and arrest warrants issued and so forth. Now, any case that involves misuse of at least 100,000 euros in EU funds can be brought directly to the European Public Prosecutor's Office.
1: So who are the EPPO's prosecutors? What kinds of fraud do you expect them to, to go
3: after? The EPPO has 22 members of what they call its college, one from each participating EU country. And those are senior prosecutors who will make the key decisions about each case that gets recommended to them. And then beneath that, each country nominates prosecutors who will do the basic work of investigating and prosecuting the case for the EPPO. And the kinds of cases you'll see, some of them will just be straight up graft and corruption cases. In other cases, there are these complex financial crimes. But the most complicated and sensitive cases are the ones involving the misappropriation of EU funds by politicians and political networks. There are a number of national governments in the EU where the justice systems are no longer really independent enough to guarantee that you can really prosecute cases like that. And it is hoped that the EPPO prosecutors have more independence than the national internal judicial system. Which is to say they can track down that kind of malfeasance anywhere within the EU? The EPPO operates in all of the EU states that have signed up for it. There are five states who have not signed up for it. Those include Denmark, which has an opt-out from all justice affairs, Sweden, which says it's going to join soon, but more worrisomely, they include Hungary and Poland, which are two of the countries where concerns over the political capture of the judicial system are the most severe. Hungary is the worst offender in terms of fraud with EU money at the moment.
1: But what good does it do if the countries that have the highest rates of fraud can, can
3: simply opt out? The hope is that as the EPPO will deliver some big successes in prosecuting corruption in other countries, it'll become increasingly glaring that the Hungarians and Poles are scared to subject themselves to that sort of scrutiny. And eventually they'll be forced to sign on. And also in a lot of cases, if the fraud does have cross-border elements, then you can prosecute some of the fraud that's taking place in a country like Hungary and Poland by looking at the aspects of it that take place in other countries that are members of the EPPO.
1: But still, the college of these prosecutors is made up of prosecutors
3: from member states. How
1: to ensure that the political influence at home doesn't reach them there?
3: The rules of the EPPO forbid any prosecutor from participating in any case that has to do with their home country. In terms of the actual prosecutors at the country level who organize these cases, the EPPO can reject candidates if they don't think they're sufficiently independent, and they have. And once people are appointed, their terms at the EPPO can be extended indefinitely. Their home country cannot take them back. So they have guaranteed jobs. And that's very important because it means that the prosecutors who are serving at the EPPO don't need to worry that their careers are going to be wrecked if they take on powerful people in their home countries. And so now it's getting up to speed. What's on the docket? What are the big cases that are coming? We don't know which cases have been referred yet officially, but it's been reported that the Czechs have referred the case against their prime minister, Andrei Babiš. He is accused of illegally profiting from EU subsidies to an agriculture company that he used to own. He denies anything of the sort, of course. But there have been hundreds more cases already filed. We're probably not going to know what they are until the EPPU starts to bring charges. But they expect to start bringing the first charges by the end of the year. They're a new agency, so they have to prove their worth to European citizens. They're going to have to do that by bringing big cases, prosecuting people and getting them convicted. And so what's your view on how much this new office will have an impact on the EU's political dynamics? I think it plays a significant role because donor countries in the EU, mostly northern countries who give more to the EU than they get back, are always worried that their money is going to be stolen by fraud in countries with serious organized crime problems or in liberal countries where they can't trust the justice system. And the hope is that with an independent prosecutor taking on these cases, it will reassure donor countries that when they contribute to the EU budget, those monies won't subsidize political corruption. And that is something that should create more willingness to engage in the kinds of spending that the EU needs to do in order to make itself a real economic union.
1: Matt, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. In Japan, for every season, there's a sweet, and nothing says summer like the flavor of chocolate mint. Chocolate mint ice cream, chocolate mint cookies, chocolate mint bubble tea, even chocolate mint bagels. Whole shelves go brown and bright green for a few warm weeks. So does social media where feeds are filled with chocominto
4: <laughs>
1: And then as fast as it arrived, the chocolate mint season ends and it's on to the next flavor fad.
4: Seasonal sweet culture in Japan definitely has its roots in a tradition of seasonality in Japanese cooking and sweets.
1: Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief.
4: And it's something that candy and snack makers have really capitalized on. So they sell cherry-flavored goods during the cherry blossom season in the spring, and then they roll out lines of sweet potato-flavored snacks in the autumn. It's something that consumers here have come to expect and really enjoy.
1: In that sense, in, in terms of mass market seasonal flavors, it's a bit like the pumpkin spice obsession in America that comes around once a year.
4: It is a bit, but kind of taken to the extreme and done constantly. It's not just one season, it's an endless flow of seasons. And Japan has a huge network of convenience stores or kombini And they really depend on novelty to draw customers back in. So the selection in these convenience stores changes as often as once a week. So snack food producers, candy makers have really adapted to this cycle. You know, Nestle, for example, has produced hundreds of flavors of Kit Kat bars exclusive to Japan, including red bean paste flavored Kit Kats and even wasabi flavored Kit Kats. One confectioner I talked to produces a sweet shaped like a chicken wing for stores in Nagoya, which is known for its fried chicken, and another one for Osaka that resembles a steamed pork bun, which is a local specialty there. All across the country, you have this constant sort of rotation of limited edition seasonal items sprouting on shelves every few weeks.
1: I mean, for my sins, I might like to try a pork bun shaped sweet. Can I get my hands on one outside of the Japanese market?
4: There's really a sort of structural element to the way the market works here. And these convenience stores tend to charge lower fees for listing new items than retailers elsewhere. So, you know, I talked, for example, to the uh, former head of Nestle Japan. And as he explained it to me, the approach kind of flopped in Britain, the original home of the Kit Kat bar, because retailers there charged higher fees to carry new items. So it was much harder to break even. It requires a different manufacturing model as well. Big, you know, multinational food and beverage companies, they tend to optimize for high volumes of a a limited number of items. But
1: the sort of feverish seasonal buying of this stuff makes up for the extra hassle, the extra production
4: costs, I guess? Exactly. A lot of sweets producers say it's really hard to differentiate yourself based on quality alone. Everyone's stuff tastes good. And so they have to turn to these kind of slightly more gimmicky approaches to attract attention. The way to stand out from the crowd is not making a better tasting candy bar, but a rarer, more unusual, more fleeting, hype-worthy candy bar.
1: And so this Choco Minto flavor is currently riding the hype wave then?
4: There are really few seasonal flavors these days in Japan that have as Devoted a, a fan base online as uh, Choco Minto.
2: tachi ga ippai I mean,
4: it's almost a sort of a cult item on, on social media. And people will tag post Chocominto and show off rare chocomint items that they've found. I talked to one influencer who runs a suite of chocominto-themed social media accounts and even published a guidebook to uh, chocominto offerings in Tokyo. He's been leading offline get-togethers of uh, chocominto aficionados, and you know as he put it to me, the only real downside to the chocominto obsession is the flavor's fleeting nature. He soothes his sorrow with the strawberry-flavored sweets that grow on shelves in the winter.
1: Noah, thanks very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Jess.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.